0: Today's scripture is from the letter to Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 6 to 16. I will be reading in Polish and the English translation will be on the screen. A jednak to, co głosimy, ludzie dojrzali wierze wierze przyjmują jako mądrość, choć nie jest to mądrość tego świata, ani jego przemijających przywódców. Mówimy bowiem o tajemnej mądrości samego Boga która ze względu na nas była ukryta przez całe wieki. Żaden z przywódców tego świata jej nie pojął, bo gdyby było inaczej, nie ukrzyżowaliby Pana chwały. Pismo mówi, dla tych, którzy kochają Boga, przygotował On rzeczy, jakich nikt nigdy nie widział, o jakich nikt nigdy nie słyszał i jakie nikomu nawet nie przyszły na myśl. Bóg objawił to nam przez swojego ducha. On bowiem przenika wszystko i zna najgłębsze Boże tajemnice. Kto wie, co kryje się w człowieku, jeśli nie on sam, czyli jego duch? Podobnie nikt poza duchem Bożym nie może wniknąć w Boga. Nie przyjęliśmy przecież ducha tego świata. Otrzymaliśmy ducha Boga, abyśmy mogli zrozumieć, czym nas obdarował. Mówimy o tym nie w błyskotliwych słowach ludzkiej mądrości, ale słowami pochodzącymi od Ducha Świętego. Duchowe sprawy wyrażając w duchowy sposób. Człowiek kierujący się tylko zmysłami nie rozumie rzeczy pochodzących od Ducha Bożego. Wydają mu się głupie i nie jest w stanie ich pojąć, bo można je zrozumieć tylko dzięki duchowi. Człowiek kierowany przez Ducha Świętego zrozumie zaś to wszystko, ale inni Go nie rozumieją. Pismo mówi, kto ogarnie myśli Pana, kto może zostać Jego doradcą. My znamy zamiary Chrystusa. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Uh, Good morning, Trinity City. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is David Nelson. I'm the pastoral resident here at the church. Uh, I don't think I have any announcements for us this morning, so why don't I uh, pray for our time and we'll just dig into the text. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Um, Thank you for the encouragement that we have um, season in and season out. Um, Father, we ask that you would continue to build us up by the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would be present and working in our midst, as the text says, to reveal the freely given realities that we have in Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If Monopoly is the game that ruins friendships, then I think chess is the board game that prevents them from happening altogether. When I was a junior in college, I lived with roommates who enjoyed playing chess and enjoyed humiliating me in the process. And if you've never played chess before, it's this one-on-one strategy board game. You've probably seen a chess board before. But both of you have 16 pieces each, and they all have different movement abilities, and you use those pieces to eliminate your opponent's pieces and eventually trap their king, and that's called a checkmate. And while it sounds simple, perhaps, the thing that makes chess so difficult for most people, most people including me, is the fact that you have to continue to think ahead of your opponent in order to win. It is a game of master planning. Complicating this master plan is the fact that you have to make sacrificial choices and difficult decisions that on the surface might seem foolish or even dumb, but in the end, you think they'll actually help you win. For example, there's a lesser chess piece called a pawn and you might have to move that piece forward and have him killed in order to move one of your stronger pieces, like a bishop, into a more strategic spot. But if you lack either of those abilities, the ability to master plan or the ability to make sacrificial decisions, you will lose. And you'll likely lose quickly and likely in humiliating fashion, whether it's to your roommate or to the AI software on your MacBook. But for as frustrating as I find this game, chess does expose two errors that we are prone to as individuals. First, we have this natural tendency to make decisions based on what feels good to us at that time, rather than what might be the most wise or right thing. I'm sure we can all think of examples where we made decisions where we didn't see an outcome coming or it ended up being the wrong decision and we realized it too late. But chess also exposes our apprehensiveness about making sacrifices in general for a larger purpose. Our natural tendency is to narrowly focus on how to maximize my own happiness or to ask how I can get others to change in order to fit my needs. However, if there are two attributes of God that we see on display in the gospel, it's that he is both master planner and triumphant victor through sacrifice. Like a game of chess, Paul says, some of the moves that God makes might seem foolish to us, but they are all part of this master plan. Paul says here in chapter 2 that there is a wisdom in the gospel for us to see and for us to relish in, but we need to understand God's mind in order to appreciate it. So, how do you get into the mind of God to see this wisdom? Paul says, through the Spirit. And that's where Paul is going to be taking us this morning. So, I think Paul is going to address three different topics for us this morning. First, the folly of human rulers. Second, the wisdom that we have from the Holy Spirit. And third, the result of both of those things. So, let's start with the folly of human rulers. Let's go to verse 6. Paul says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Paul declares the message of Christ as essential for the Christian faith to justify us, so to declare us righteous, and to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus. And this is over and against human wisdom or the conventional way of doing things. But here, Paul reminds us very quickly that there is a wisdom in the gospel. He says we're not just preaching foolishness. There is a wisdom to be found here. But he says it is a wisdom for the mature. He has that qualifier, for the mature, that runs counter to the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So something we've been talking about that's happened in Corinth is there's this idolization of power, of stature, of rhetoric, of perceived importance, and Paul is getting after that here, and he throws this subtle jab at the Corinthian church, and he'll be far more explicit about it at the beginning of chapter 3, because Paul is going to say, you're not the mature ones. Paul goes, the Corinthian church is not mature. You guys think and act like spiritual babies. But why are they mature? Because that's quite the comment. Well, it was because they were latching on to the wisdom of the world and to those they perceived as important. They were clinging to this wisdom from the ruling individuals. And maybe we can take some encouragement from this because, goodness gracious, if there's something that we are prone to as Christians, it is to put our faith in human leaders and rely on their wisdom. I mean, just think for a second. Who are some of the people at the top of your head who could be perceived as leaders or as important whose wisdom people cling to and follow almost blindly? I would guess if you're like my brain, it went to politics. So you went to, uh, you know, political rulers or leaders of our age, like a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden or even a Bernie Sanders. Maybe you thought of medical officials like a Dr. Fauci or a Dr. Birx, or maybe you thought of people like Elon Musk or Bill Gates. Maybe your head went to religious leaders like Pope Francis, Bishop Talbert Swan, John MacArthur, Billy Graham. Maybe you thought of thought leaders like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Rachel Maddow, or Tucker Carlson. And in the end, it doesn't really matter who you think about, because there's so many that we can list off, but we all know that one person or those two people in our lives who just hang on every word and piece of wisdom that this person has to say. or. Maybe this is us. Verses like verse 6 call us to be self-reflective here and to ask, is this me? Am I the one clinging to the wisdom of the world and of its leaders? And one of the ways that you can tell this is happening to you is you start to justify the words and actions of this individual even though they are clearly not aligned with Scripture. Um, I'm sorry to do this, but let's go back for a second to the 2016 election. All right, let's just go back there. Like, remember when Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters a basket of deplorables? Like, I would hope that you didn't start referring to your brothers and sisters around you as deplorables if they voted for Donald Trump. Because even if you perceive them as your enemies, Jesus says to love them and pray for them, not malign them. And I also hope that when Donald Trump made fun of that disabled reporter, that you were angry and not laughing along with him. Talk about an insult to the image of God making fun of somebody with a disease. I don't remember Jesus doing that to the guy with the withered hand. But those are just two examples, and there are hundreds more from across the political and social spectrums that we can think about. But if that's true of any of us, I invite us to repent. I invite us to repent and realize that God has given us a better wisdom to look into. God's going here, or, uh, Paul's going here, why are you listening to these people? Do you know they're going to be dead soon? Like, that's his point, like they're coming to nothing. He says that in a short time, their flesh is going to be like dust, and the only physical reminder of their existence will be an urn or a tombstone. They don't last, Paul says. So let's rely on the eternal wisdom of God that triumphs over them. And that's where Paul takes us in verse 7. He says, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. So Paul says, God's wisdom is on display in the gospel. It's there, but it's hidden from us in a sense. It's behind the scenes, like, like a chess move we don't understand. God made it, but it requires the right mind to figure out exactly what he's doing. The rulers of this age, Paul says in verse 8, do not see the wisdom of the gospel. He says, otherwise they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says if they had any understanding of this wisdom of God on display in Christ, they wouldn't have touched him. They thought nothing of Jesus Christ, though. Think about the indictment when Pilate agreed to release. He's got two people in front of him. He's got Barabbas, the insurrectionist, and the murderer, and he's got Jesus, and he says, I'll release one of them back to you. People say, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. They thought nothing of the Lord of glory. And when they had crucified him, they thought they had won. But Paul tells us, no, this was according to God's plan. Because apart from crucifying the Lord of glory, we would have no inheritance with him. That's why it needed to happen. As harrowing and as gut-wrenching as the cross it is Christ crucified that is our hope in the world. It is that sacrifice that brings victory over sin and death and all of God's enemies, no matter how foolish it seems. Paul says in verse 9, when he quotes Isaiah, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. What does that verse mean? Because I always thought that verse was like about heaven and about things in the future, but Paul's saying, no, that's, those things are available now. And what Paul is saying here is that the gospel message is far more beautiful and far more wonderful than we could have imagined, because on display in the gospel, on display, the things that God has prepared for those who love him is the love of God. It's beautiful, the cross is beautiful because in love, the incarnate wisdom of God suffered at the hands of sinners and poured out his blood for us. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the wonder of that is what we need to see this morning. But the question becomes, how does that become real to our hearts and minds? How do we see this properly? And Paul says we need the Holy Spirit. So go to verse 10. These are the things, so the things God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So the difference, friends, between us understanding the gospel and us seeing it as complete foolishness is a work of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God who knows the things of God, and therefore, when He comes to dwell in us through faith, we are able to discern what God has freely given us in the cross. Freely given, so not based on our works, not based on our attitudes, not based on our willpower, but freely given to us by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's what the Spirit preaches to our souls. But the real question becomes, well, that sounds kind of esoteric and weird, so what, what do you exactly you mean by this, that the Spirit preaches to us? Because if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you might be thinking I'm talking about supernatural mumbo-jumbo right now. A Spirit dwelling in us, convincing us to believe something. And admittedly, Jesus compares the work of the Spirit to wind whistling through the trees. He says in John 3, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everybody born in the Spirit. So, even Jesus is saying, yeah, there's, there's the mystery to the work of the Spirit. But I think Paul is giving us enough here to make a, a definition of what the work of the Spirit looks like. And I think the main point that Paul is getting across here, especially comparing us with the rulers of the age who don't understand the wisdom, is that the Spirit's work is to change the core of who we are so that we might understand and believe the gospel. He says your tastes change, your will changes, your inner beings change, your desires change. It means one day, because of the work of the Spirit, you hear the gospel and it doesn't sound ridiculous to you. That's not something you can do in and of yourself. That's not something that I could convince myself up that I was a sinner, that none of my good works can uh, please God, that I would need the, the sacrifice of Christ in my place. I couldn't believe that on my own. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. He takes the realities of the gospel and he makes them real to us. And so we become Christians, not by worldly wisdom, not because somebody was impressive in the pulpit, but because of the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're still not picking up what I'm laying down, let me, let me illustrate it this way. So when I was a kid in church camp, we used to sing a hymn called He's Everything to Me, and I always thought it was so thought-provoking, because I related so well to the first couple of verses of the song, and and it was written by a guy named Ralph Carmichael, who was big in the Jesus movement in the 1970s, and he actually passed away a couple of months ago. But I want to read to you his lyrics this morning, because I think they capture the meaning of the Spirit's work. Here's what he wrote. In the stars, God's handiwork I see. On the wind's He speaks with majesty, though he rules over land and sea. What's that to me? I will celebrate nativity. It has its place in history. Sure, he came to set his people free. But what's that to me? Till by faith I met him face to face, and I felt the wonder of his grace. Then I knew that He was more than just a God who didn't care, that lived way out there. And now He walks beside me day by day, ever watching over me, even when I stray, helping me to find the narrow way. He's everything to me. Do you see the difference? The Spirit's work is to turn our passive indifference to the cross and the things of God into a passionate yes. And this is great news for us today because that means a couple of things. First, it means the way into God's family is not through our own intelligence. It's not by how smart we are or which family we were born into or our academic resumes. No, the wisdom of God displayed in Christ is available to anyone and everyone to understand. Think about that quote in Romans chapter 9 where God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That means anybody can get in on this. And second, the Spirit's work means God has not given up on us. The Spirit's active work in the world is proof of God's continued love and grace for sinners like you and me. Because you see, the Spirit meets us in our striving to be wise. He meets us in our foolishness. He meets us in our sin and in our scoffering. And he takes the wonder of the gospel of Christ, who is the wisdom of God, and he makes it real to our hearts and minds. That's the Spirit's work. Paul continues in verse 13. What Christ has freely given us is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human words, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Now, a little bit of housekeeping here. Um, Because one thing I want to point out is that different versions of the Bible will translate verse 13 just a tad bit differently. And I know the English Standard Version is a popular one, and that one translates this sentence, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the question comes down to, okay, is that second noun there in the second clause, is that words or is that spiritual people? Well, if you take the original Greek, 1 Corinthians was written, and the second clause literally says spiritual comparing spiritual or comparing spiritual spiritual. So the whole argument basically comes down to what, think you fi- what gender you think that second word is, whether it's masculine or neuter. And if you think it's neuter, you think this is words. If you think it's masculine, you think this is people. But I, along with most commentators, and I think the NIV that we use here uh, gets it right because I think what Paul is going for here is spiritual words. Clear as mud? But regardless of what conclusion that you come to, both statements are absolutely 100% true. Spiritual realities can only be understood by spiritual people, and human wisdom cannot explain spiritual reality, so we need spirit-taught words. And, of course, that brings up the question, what in the world are spirits taught words? Well, I I think Paul gives us the answer. So go back to verse 7. He says, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden. Where was Christ hidden? In the pages of the Old Testament. And what's the Spirit's job? To reveal to us. So to compare spiritual with spiritual, what he's talking about in verse 13 means we now can look at the Old Testament in a way that's completely different. It means all of a sudden we can read through the first 39 books of the Bible and go, oh my gosh, Jesus is in these things. And it's God's continuing unfolding plan of salvation for us. And now I can see those things because of the Spirit. I tried to write the section myself, but it was just going to sound like a bad impression, so I'm just going to quote him. Uh, about 15 years ago, uh, Tim Keller preached a sermon called, What is Gospel-Centered Ministry? And it's probably my favorite sermon of all time. And, and there's a section in there where he talks about how this understanding of Jesus in the Old Testament changes, or how an understanding of Christ in the Gospel changes how we see Him in the Old Testament. Because suddenly, Jesus starts showing up on almost every page. He's no longer hidden from us who have the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is, this is what this turns out to be. And it's, it's a longer quote, but I promise it's, it's not boring. Keller says this. He says, we begin to ri- read the Bible differently. He says, we see that Jesus is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. That Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though the shepherd innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal? That Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people for God. That Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, Because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we, at the foot of the cross, can say to God, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus, the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who's at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people of the Lord and who mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who though struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's all about him. He's all over. He's everywhere. And the Spirit reveals to us that hidden wisdom, because the Spirit's work is to reveal that to us. And let me give you this application. So it's January 2nd, or one day into the new year, and one of the best decisions I ever made was starting and continuing a Bible reading plan. Um, You know, I don't know how you read your Bible or or how much of it you've read, but I'm pretty aimless when I read. So I'm like, all right, well, let's read Galatians for the eighth time this year. Like, I I need somebody yelling at me and and telling me exactly what to do. But for a, a few years ago, when I was starting my internship at a church, God convicted me because I was planning on going to ministry and I hadn't read any or all of the Old Testament. And so one year, I was like, all right, I'm going to find a Bible reading plan. I'm just going to read it all the way through, and we'll see what happens. And so I read my Bible, all of 2018, and by the time I finished it, I went, yeah, man, there are so many glories of Jesus in these pages. And I saw even more than what Timmy K was telling me to see. It's a mystery that has been hidden that God destined for our glory that the Spirit has now revealed to us. So I would encourage you, friends, as you buy new gym shoes, buy that new weight scale, take up the knitting needles, handwrite cards to friends, eat more vegetables or read one book a month, I would encourage you to consider reading your Bible in 2022. Not out of a sense of guilt or duty, but so that you might see more and more of this hidden wisdom in its pages and that you would rely more and more on the Spirit who wrote them. So, the folly of human rulers versus the wisdom of the Spirit, what are the results of both of those things? Verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that are from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is where you stand. It all seems like foolishness and confusion and ridiculousness to you, but the answer to your confusion is not to try and study more, but the answer is the Holy Spirit. So if you consider yourself a spiritual seeker or somebody trying to find God, I'd encourage you to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to come and help you understand the things freely given to us in the gospel. And if you're here this morning, but you're already a believer, but you feel like you're starting 2022 with a brand of Christianity that just feels stale and lifeless, again, I would encourage you to pray for the Spirit's help. He's the one who animates these things for us. We have a birthright of joy. Paul says in verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? That means that your birthright as a Christian, one of the gifts of the gospel is that you get to approach life in a distinctly different way than anyone else does. You no longer evaluate the world around you according to human wisdom, but in the wisdom of Christ taught to you by the Spirit. You get to wake up in the morning not distracted by something some world leader said, even though they might have started World War III. You get to wake up not focusing on all of the tasks that you have ahead of yourself, but you get to wake up in the morning knowing that you are loved by God, that you're saved by grace, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that nothing hell or anyone else can do can break that status. But that does not mean that we run away from the world either. It means that we go into the world, we press into the world as people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. It means human beings are no longer just people to us. I no longer see my neighbor as somebody who can give stuff or I can get stuff from, but I see them as an image bearer who deserves to be loved and cared for because they are an image bearer. Human rulers are no longer just rulers to us, but they are people who God has installed hopefully to enact justice. And we do our best to submit to them. Church leaders are no longer idols to us. They're no longer the super impressive superheroes of the faith, but they're imperfect. Yes, they're really imperfect people that God uses so that we might all come to a unified faith in the Spirit. But above all, when the Spirit comes, the things that matter most to us are no longer the ultimate thing to us. And that might be the most liberating thing of all, of all. In a way, you lose your love for the world around you, but in a, in a different way, you, you actually get to love the world better as a result because you're not asking the world and what you find in it to be your ultimate source of wisdom and joy. Relying on the world around you for wisdom is like trying to hammer down a nail with a screwdriver. You ever done that before? You're sitting there tapping away at the, with the handle, It's not going to work, and you're going to get awkwardly mad at a screwdriver, but you're the one asking it to do something that it's not meant to do. The world and its leaders are not meant to be our source of wisdom. Go get the hammer. We have been given the very mind of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not walking around in the dark anymore, we're people of the light. We've seen the light of the gospel and those things freely given to us through the blood of the cross, and we rejoice that we have found a greater treasure than what the world can offer. So in conclusion, friends, apart from the Spirit, we are trapped in our foolishness, lacking understanding, in desperate need of help from someone wise who can explain to us the master plan of God, and yet God, being rich in mercy, sends his Spirit so that you and I might understand his great wisdom in the gospel, his victory over his enemies, and what we freely have now as a result. That is the God we worship. Not one who's far away from any one of us, but one who is active in our world today through his Holy Spirit. And so, friends, this morning, I invite us to no longer submit to the world and the ways of the world but that we would submit ourselves to the triune God who has revealed to us the hidden wisdom by his Spirit that is able to make us wise for salvation. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for your Spirit through whom we live and move and we have our being. Father, thank you that We no longer see the gospel as foolishness, but we see it as beautiful and wonderful. And Father, I pray for those hearts right now who are struggling to see that. Would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help them to see the beauty of the cross?